The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, uh, welcome to Heritage. If you would, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high and wave it around. One of these guys will get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you, and we just pray that God would use that to teach you more and more about Him. That's a little too dark, guys, if you could. I want to be able to see people a little bit. That'd be helpful. Thanks. Um, hey, uh, I, I have a couple of announcements for you, but I'm not going to do any of them, just so you know. Um, you probably got this when you came in, and there's a whole lot of stuff in this, so read this. Uh, amen? And we're done. That's the best. Awesome. I hate announcements. That's the best announcements experience I've had in a really, really long time. I'm going to be reading. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start actually on the Friday account. So John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. And so they took Jesus And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city Verse 21, and so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Hmm. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier and also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. To see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for Sabbath was the high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came to break the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, 
that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple that were going towards the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went in the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. When you read through this, it's an interesting account, right? There's a lot of little details that are thrown in there. The apostle does tell us as he's writing here, he says, these things are true that you might believe. And it it seems even that he throws details and accounts into the story, um, committed to showing us that, hey, we took time here. We were noting details. We were sharing the exact events that what happened. And you see things from maybe some of the words that were used, the language that was used, the fact that there was a face cloth, not lying here, but lying there. It is a detailed account of a real, occurrence that took place over 2,000 years ago when the disciples of Jesus first encountered the risen Savior. But their experience that morning was probably significantly different than much of ours is on most Easter mornings. I'm convinced of it. 
I've been kind of chewing on this idea all weekend, this idea of emotion and feeling. And because a lot of times when the Easter service comes around, and I've been to a lot of them now, uh, 44 as a matter of fact in my life, I've been to 44 Easter services, and most of the Easter services I've been to, well, let's just be fair, I grew up in the Baptist church, so it was, it was a little stuffy, it was a little preachy, and I was a kid and didn't pay attention anyway. So I can't tell you too much about all of that, but a lot of the services I've been a part of, and honestly, a lot of the services I've done have been with an angle. Hey, visitors here, I usually angle at you. Just going to be honest, because it's that opportunity when all these people are here that maybe aren't part of our church. There's visitors here. You guys come when we invite you to Easter services, and we love it, and we're glad you're here. And so a lot of times when I would prepare the sermon for Easter Sunday, I was thinking with you guys in mind, like, how can I convince them that this really happened? And so a lot of times what we do is we go to facts, We go to the accounts, we go to historical accounts, and all of these things to try to prove people that this stuff happened. But you know what? When I go back to the reality of what it must have been like for the followers of Jesus that day, I I don't think they would have jumped to theology. I don't think they would have jumped to apologetics. I don't think they would have jumped to a historical account. This was written much, much later after the actual events took place. I think what they experienced more than anything was emotion. I mean, can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that they had been on that weekend alone? I mean, seven days previously, they had marched into the city with palm branches waving, saying, This is our king. And we studied this last week. We talked about the fact that the Bible even tells us they were convinced that Jesus was coming into the city to set up his kingdom, to take over, to kick Rome out, and they would rule and reign with Jesus forever. And instead of going to the temple to ascend to his throne, he turns, he goes back up the hill, he sits and starts weeping over the city because so many people did not realize who he was and they missed him. And then the week just plays out kind of weird for them from there on out. Here's this king. He's their king. And then one night, suddenly, he takes on the clothing of a servant, starts washing their feet. He starts talking about the fact that I'm going to be leaving you. I'm not going to be here forever. And and just as I'm washing feet here, this is what you're going to do for other people. And then he takes them up to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, guys, pray with me. And they're wiped out. They're falling asleep, but he's praying. And the next thing you know, he's arrested. They're scared to death. They scatter. Peter, who had said, I will never leave you, doesn't just run, but, but lies, denies that he even knew Jesus to total strangers three different times. Judas, the one who they thought was one of them, had sold Jesus into, into the, the, uh, the arrest. He had sold him to their enemies and then goes and hangs himself. So even that is going to be an incredibly traumatic experience to walk through. And then they start to get the reports. Hey, Jesus is found guilty. They took him and they beat him. They whipped him. I talked to somebody and they, so-and-so, they said they were there. They said that the blood was unbelievable. They said that they couldn't believe he even survived the beating. And they would hear these accounts as it's coming through. And their fear would just grow and grow and grow. And then the next thing you know, Jesus, carrying this cross, makes his way up Golgotha to the place of the skull. And John, the writer of this particular gospel, was there. He's, as far as we can tell, the only apostle that actually sees it. And there they are. We see it in the account, don't we? Off to the side as Jesus is killed. And this is their king. They had invested everything in him. And now their king is dead. What do you do with a dead king? 
Saturday's quiet. We don't hear very much about what went on on Saturday, but we can imagine it was not a very happy occurrence. Dashed dreams, missing their friend. What do we do now? Not to mention the fears of if they went after Jesus, they're going to come after us. You guys remember Jesus taught us that one time, didn't he? He said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you too. So when, when will they be knocking on our door? When's our time to be beaten and crucified? Incredible emotion. And then that morning, these women make their way to the tomb so early. And the accounts that we just read take place. And then a totally different type of report starts trickling in. I've seen him. What do you mean you've seen him? I mean, I've seen him. He's alive. And they're running to the tomb. You read the accounts. It's sort of all over the place. One's running to the tomb. He outran the other. Mary's trying to keep up. They get there. One goes in. One doesn't. Then they run back. But Mary just got there, so she waits. Then Jesus shows up, and there's this back and forth happening. It's like this frantic emotional activity that surely took place. And so now here we are on Easter Sunday some 2,000 years later, and I wonder, why don't we have the same kind of emotion over this event? Why isn't that something we focus on? Actually, in a lot of places in the church, we discount emotion. And we go, oh, emotion gets you in trouble. We need theology. And those are all true. But just a couple of weeks ago, I got the opportunity, bucket list dream of mine, to go down to Phoenix, Arizona, to watch my favorite basketball team and God's favorite basketball team, the North Carolina Tar Heels, win the national championship in Phoenix, Arizona. And here's what happened when I was there. I was down there with 77 thousand people watching a game who were totally carried away by emotion screaming and cheering and yelling our seats were so far away most of the time you couldn't tell if the basket went in or not and you're just like oh, they cheered yeah we just cheered and yelled and overcome with emotion and me and please don't judge me too much um but as a, as a little nine-year-old boy, I watched Michael Jordan hit the game winner against Georgetown for North Carolina. And from that day, it had been a dream of mine to go to the Final Four, much less watch this team win the national championship. And when that happened, when it won and we came down near the court, one shining moment plays on the screen. If you're not a fan, you don't know what I mean, but trust me, it's cool. And we're there. And I just had a most, I had tears, like actual tears for basketball. What are some of the other things that capture our emotions as a people? What are some of the things that we get really excited about? That, and I don't mean like there's one thing this guy gets fired up about and there's one thing that person gets fired up about. They like the notebook. They like the puppy movie. They, what, that's not what I mean. You know what we like? Stories of war and heroes. We like that. We like Memorial Day. We like Veterans Day. We like Band of Brothers, Right? When we see those stories, we as a people collectively, for the most part, we're moved. And emotions can come. We watch movies of the sacrifice that people paid, the battles that went on, and we're moved. It's one of the reasons we're so into sports. Sports is controlled war. There's just enough rules to make sure they don't kill each other. Usually. And, and the two teams, your, your kingdoms, if you will, come into the arena. There's Gonzaga on one side and North Carolina on the other. And there's officials to keep everything civil. But this battle takes place and we want to cheer our victories. We want to cheer our winners. And then we even do it like we actually played the game. We won! Nachos. And it gets us all fired up. 
And, and I was thinking about it, and at least I do this part of it. Maybe you guys do it more for like Oregon football or something, but, but you get fired up watching it. And if you ever notice, there's almost like this weird joy-laced anger that comes in. Get them! You know what I mean? And they make a basket or they score. We pump our fists. Yeah! Someone was like, telling me at the game when we were there, they were like, man, I just hope we have a close game. I was like, not me. I hope it's a slaughter. Think of the words you're using. I hope we kill them. (gasps) I mean, that's the way we talk. They were like, that's no fun. And I was like, I would enjoy every moment of a blowout win. You know, I think, I, I, I think maybe we could better appreciate what really happened that one morning, if we could just take a step back sometimes from the minutia and the detail and the let's prove every little aspect and let's try to understand every little word and just once in a while take a step back and understand what really happened that morning. Because that was a battle between two kingdoms that had been brewing since the beginning of time. Even the language that is used in many of the accounts in Scripture in books like Colossians that we're studying right now as a church uses battlefield language to talk about what happened on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't think we fully get it. I mean, I know you guys are excited. You cheered when the video played. You didn't even, you missed the best part. We started the thing way too soon. The video was even, we'll just use it for next year. But, but like we cheer and we get excited and, and, and there's emotion, but I don't think we fully get it, or we would have no qualms about showing the same type of emotion here as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus that 77,000 people share over a stupid basketball game that has no eternal consequence whatsoever. Because what really happened had started so long ago. Satan was this created being. He was an angel. The Bible tells us that he actually served in the very throne room of God, leading some people to think that he was a worship leader because all of our accounts in the Bible, when you see the angels actively participating in, wor- or in the throne room of God, they're always worshiping. And, and we know he was in a position of some sort of preeminence among the angels. And so here he is in the throne room of God where worship is always ascending. But pride kicked in. Augustine said that pride is the pregnant woman of all sin. In other words, that all sin eventually is birthed out of this notion of pride. And literally, the Bible tells us that Satan became filled with, literally, self-esteem. He's in this throne room where all these praises are ascending regarding God. And at a certain point, he's thinking, yeah, but I'm pretty good. What about me? I'm pretty awesome. I mean, I got power and position, and he becomes jealous and envious. And it says that he got to a place where he was like, I want to set my throne above God's throne. I want to be like the Most High. And then he goes into marketing. He starts going around to the other angels in the area, and he's like, hey, come with me. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. And he builds this following. And this cosmic battle takes place in heaven where Satan leads these angels, fallen angels, demons, against the Most High. He's crushed instantly, and they are kicked out of heaven, and then the book of Genesis kicks in. God creates the heaven and earth. He creates a garden. He creates the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and there they are in the garden. And the Bible tells us that Satan is still doing marketing. And he comes in as a serpent, and he comes to Adam and Eve, 
and he starts trying to sell them on the same philosophy that he's been about all along. You can be like God. You don't have to be under this king. You don't have to be serving him. You don't have to be about his business, following his rules. You can be like God, and they, they bite in, and the fall happens. And God comes into the garden, and in Genesis 3.15, there's this declaration of war that takes place. It's referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. It's this, the first gospel, and the idea is he comes in in Genesis chapter 3, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, a king is going to come out of this woman's lineage, and a battle's going to take place. And you're going to bruise his heel. That king will be bruised. He will be bloodied. But he's going to crush your skull. And you see, even in that moment, no opportunity for salvation is extended to Satan and his demons. They will be destroyed. That's the declaration. But to Adam and Eve, there's this promise of deliverance. He even kills the first animal to be killed, is actually sacrificed and killed to make a covering for them, a foretelling of what was going to happen many years down the road. And from that point forward, as you make your way through the scriptures, you see this ongoing clash between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And even one generation later, you have the children. You have Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve. You have one who is worshiping God, whose sacrifices are accepted. And you have the other one consumed by what? Pride. Jealousy. And he strikes down Abel. And it only grows from there. The New Testament is incredibly bloody. It is this constant battle between good and evil, darkness and light. If you ever get into movies like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, all the, they're all Bible ripoffs, all of them. This is where it all came from. The reason that we have this drive towards movies like that and even this understanding of this battle and this redemption is because there's a, a memory trace in our eternal souls that harkens back to this. And the Old Testament just goes on. Everything's here. There's kings and heroes. There's empires and warriors. Battles, assassinations and slaves and spies. There's invasions and showdowns and terrorist attacks. All of it and more. And then when it seems the darkest for the kingdom of God, there's an invasion. This promised king, this baby is born. And you know, one of the reasons we love stuff like The Hobbit movies like that, where, where redemption and salvation comes through the least likely source, the weakest one out there. Anybody like the movie Rudy? Cheering for the little guy? Why would we cheer for the little guy? There's a memory trace for our king who started out in the most smallest, humble, inconsequential place. But the kingdoms of light and dark knew how consequential this was. Satan goes to King Herod right away and says, hey, that king has been bored. You need to take him out. And Herod tries to kill every child born at the birth of Jesus because he doesn't want that king taking his kingdom. And so Jesus has to go on exile right away. This poor kind of vagabond life existence goes off to Egypt and has to live. And the Bible tells us, though, as Jesus grows and matures, he's in Israel. And what does he do? He, he recruits 12 men 
These men will be his generals. And he begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. He begins to teach them about the values and virtues and how the kingdom of God operates. He teaches them about humility and about meekness and about love and about serving. He promises them power when his spirit comes that they might spread the kingdom of God throughout the ends of the earth. But anytime there's an invasion... You can't have two kings in one land. That doesn't go so well. And so the powers of the kingdom of darkness, there's this conflict that begins to erupt. There's this tension that begins to come. Satan infiltrates Jesus' ranks. He recruits Judas, convinces Judas, takes hold of Judas's even heart, and Judas sells Jesus into captivity for 30 pieces of silver. And this trial takes place where the enemies of Jesus put him on trial. And what's the charge? What's the charge? This man claims to be king. He's not our king, but he claims to be king. He should be killed. And you guys know how it all goes down. He ends up being found guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be king, claiming to be God. And there's this satanically fueled, bloodthirsty mob Some of the same people who had been waving palm branches in his honor just days before, now here they are, and there's this blood lust among them, and they're going, crucify him. Crucify him. It's not just even kill him. There was no more, it's the worst that it is. Our word is excruciating, which I mean, think of a word that, that exhibits pain more than that word. Excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It was the worst of the worst. It was bloodlust that had been brewing for thousands of years. And so Jesus gets marched up to Golgotha. He gets put on the cross. And here's the king dying. His family off to the side being mocked and ridiculed. People are even telling him, if you're the king, call some of your angels down to help you. And he's silent. And he just keeps taking it. He even forgives people. They don't know what they're doing. I forgive them. It's unbelievable what's happening here. But here's the reality of it, though. Jesus is hanging there on the cross He's dying. Now think of this, the significance of this. This battle that has brewed for thousands of years. This king that had been promised since Genesis 3. This one that all of these people had put all their hope in. He's dying. And then he, he pushes up on, the, on, the, on the, the nail on his feet. Pulls himself up so that he can take in a deep breath of air. Sucks in. And he speaks out words that I think... We need to understand the significance of. He says, it is finished. Those are not words of defeat. Hanging on the cross. He's dying and he says, it is finished. It's a triumphant battle cry. We win is what he's saying. How can that be? There's this passage in Isaiah that says, surely you are a God who hides. And what we know is that victory has been hidden in this defeat. While Satan and his henchmen, they are cheering this, right? 
We've got him on the cross. He's dying. These people are chanting. His disciples have scattered. He's about to die. It's over. And yet hidden in that defeat is victory because the whole time, as we now know, Jesus is paying the price of our sin. He's paying the ransom on our behalf. And then a couple of days later, can you imagine I mean, Satan thinks he's won. Satan is not all-knowing like God is. He thinks he's won. Can you imagine the look on his face when the report trickled in there? Still partying? Oh, this is great. This is what I'm going to do. He's not thinking about you. He's not thinking about the people in his kingdom. He is filled maybe with more pride than he has ever been filled with before. And then word comes in. He got up. The stone rolled away. And he walked out. He's not dead. He's alive. The king still lives. Can you imagine? And when I say that, in some of us, do you feel a little bit of emotion in that? You feel some of that? You feel a little tinge of like, especially those of you followers of Jesus, do you feel a little bit of that sports-related kind of thing where you're like, yeah, he's still alive, yeah, he's still alive. Do you feel that? You don't feel it enough. And you know why? We look at this wrong still. Because here's what I want you to think about. There's a guy, his, his name is Plutarch. He's a Greek biographer and a writer. And he lived like shortly after the days of Jesus. And one of the things that he gave to us through history is he gave us accounts of what battles between kingdoms, the Romans, the Greeks, all these things. He told us what these battles look like and wrote some great detailed stuff about the horrific things that he saw on a battlefield. So horrific, he actually became well known down the road for his anti-war sayings as he saw this graphic death and things going on before him and it affected him. And he tells a story of what it looked like when there was an invasion, when two kingdoms come together to come to fight. Like right now, we think of war as something you fly off to go do. That was not the case. You need to think of the battles as taking place right down the street. And so the invading army would come to the city. And the city, the alarms would go out. The soldiers are all called to battle. Men in their homes are saying goodbye to their wife and goodbye to their children, maybe for the very last time. They're giving them instruction on what it's going to be like if they never show again. And then they march off to this battle that takes place right outside the city. And Plutarch tells us that sometimes they would march the families of the city that was being sieged. They would bring the wives and children of those soldiers out to the sidelines of the battle while the battle was taking place. And it's not like a basketball game where we get our cheerleaders on the side. It was for motivation. They wanted the soldiers to realize, men, everything hangs in the balance on this battle. If you lose this battle, someone else is sleeping with your wife tonight. If you lose this battle, someone else is dragging your child off into captivity. They'll be slaves. If you lose this battle, everything is over. And these men would fight to the death in an absolute bloodbath. And here's what was happening on the cross when Jesus made that sacrifice for us. Satan's cheering because to the winner go the spoils. The invading kingdoms always come in and they take the women, they take the children, they take the money, they take loot, everything. Celebrations and parties back home when they come back to their kingdom and Satan's watching all this stuff happen. He's cheering. Yes! And then Jesus declares, it is 
finished. And we get excited about that, but not enough. You know why? Because we think we were on Jesus' team. You weren't. The Bible makes it clear. We were enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians teaches us that we were in the domain of darkness and that it's Jesus that pulled us out of that and moved us into the kingdom of light. Jesus was not our king. And here we are. The battle takes place. The kingdom of darkness loses. Our king, Satan, is, praise God, defeated. And Jesus, the conquering king, comes in. And here we are, expecting to be kidnapped, expecting to be enslaved, expecting all of these things. And he stoops down and he lifts up our face and he says, I've come to set you free. He doesn't offer us slavery. He offers us freedom. He doesn't offer us servitude. He offers us adoption. And he says, join my kingdom. I'll be your king. Come with me. Instead of taking and plundering everything that we have, the Bible tells us that for those who put their faith in Jesus become part of the kingdom of God, he makes us joint heirs with him of everything. He doesn't take from you. He gives you more than you can imagine. He offers you eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and he wants to call you son. And I think too often, Christians, we go, our king won, but when you understand that as objects of his wrath, we instead received his mercy, then you can start to understand the emotion of what would have took place on that day. Then you can understand even what the apostles would have felt like when they thought their whole world was over and then heard, he's alive. Do you feel that, church? Any, any, anyone? Do you, do you feel that? This is what Jesus did for you. Romans tells us there was no one seeking him, no, not one. But Jesus came, invaded this fallen, dark kingdom to rescue sinners like us. And while we were deserving of his wrath, deserving of servitude, deserving of all of those things, he came to set the captives free. How can you not follow this man? And now, we wait our king's new arrival. He's going to come again one day in power and in glory, not on a donkey riding a white horse in victory. And all those who are opposed to our king on that day will be vanquished forever. And he's given us a mission. He said, invite people to the kingdom. Tell people about this king that they may be saved while there is still time. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning. Amen? Amen. And so, so often we make the Easter service, Sam and guys, come on out here. So often we make the Easter service about, like, uh, and again, visitors, love you, just being honest with you. We go after you guys. It's all about them. Let's get, let's tell them. But here's the reality of it. The first news of the resurrection came to the followers of Jesus and the joy that must have built in their hearts. Can you imagine what that felt like? Well, we're called to. We now worship a true and living king who is coming again in power and glory soon. So this is for the people of God. We want to worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, will you? Father, we commit this time to you and we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified as we worship you. 
I ask God that even right now that your spirit would move in this place, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, speak to our hearts, minds, and souls in this place and awaken affection and emotion. Not just intellect, not just theological understanding, but Father, may we understand the reality of the heart you have for us, what you poured out on our behalf the battle that was waged, the victory that you secured, and then the incredible offer that we might join the kingdom of God. What a gift, God. So Lord, even right now, may you receive our praises, may you receive our thanksgiving, may you receive our worship in response to the reality of the victory that you have secured for us. We thank you, God, that it is finished. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's see.